Being with your changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode cloud servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. This episode is brought to you by Rollbar. Move fast and fix things. Resolve errors in minutes and deploy with confidence. Head to rollbar.com slash changelog. Request a demo. Get started today. It's loved by developers, trusted by enterprises, and most of all, we use it here at Changelog. Move fast and fix things with Rollbar. Once again, rollbar.com slash changelog. Welcome to JS Party, a community celebration of JavaScript and the web. Tune in live on Thursdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific at changelog.com slash live. Join the community and Slack with us during the show at changelog.com slash community. And follow us on Twitter. We are at JSPartyFM. All right, let's do this. Welcome to JS Party. Mm-hmm. I'm Emma Boston, and I'm really excited because we have a really fantastic guest on today that I'm really excited to talk to. And I don't know how many times I can say the word excited in this introduction. Great. Before I introduce her, I just want to give a shout out to Jared, who is also on the line. And we are thrilled to be interviewing Amelia Wattenberger. What? What? <laughs> Can you please say this out loud? <laughs> I had this in my head. I was like, I'm going to nail it. And then I did not nail it. <laughs> Amelia Wattenberger. You're there close. There you go. I'm overthinking it. I'm overthinking yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> well, welcome. We're super thrilled that you're here today. Uh, Amelia built the amazing overview chart for the state of JavaScript survey and um, was recommended by one of the creators of the state of JS survey, Sasha Grief. Yeah. Shout out to Sasha. Thanks for suggesting this. Yeah, absolutely. And shout out to them for having a really cool website because that is one of the coolest websites I've come across. And those charts, I'm thrilled to be learning about D3 today. Um, Would you like to introduce yourself a little bit, Amelia, and tell us who you are and what you like to do and all that fun stuff? Yeah, sure. Um, I'm Amelia, and I am primarily a front-end web developer, but I focus on, um, I also do design, like UI and UX design, and I focus on data visualization. So I like working on things like designing data viz, parsing data, uh, visualizing data in the browser, which has all sorts of implications. Um, And I currently work as a front-end web developer at a small startup who works with publisher analytics. That's super cool. Did you have a like any kind of background in research or in data anything before you jumped into playing around with data visualization? Yeah, so I in college I thought I wanted to be a like a prison psychologist. Huh. <laughs> so I was planning on Whoa. going to grad school and I actually worked in um, a research lab in Texas right after I graduated. And I studied neuroscience and psychology. And then after hanging out with grad students for maybe a few months, I decided that I did not want to go to grad school. (laughs) So I think I just redid my personal site as many times as possible until I got a developer job. Wow, that's super cool. How many times is as many times? (laughs) Probably once every other week. (laughs) (laughs) I wish I had that though because I need to create one in general. If I <laughs> like, I would rather be building too many than none, which is currently the state of my portfolio. So I'm curious, what drew you into D3? First of all, can you tell us what D3 is? 
Yeah, so D3 stands for Data-Driven Documents, and it's a JavaScript library that it's from like the jQuery era. I think it's maybe 10 years old at this point. Um, so it's been all around for a really long time. And I see JavaScript libraries that help with data visualization on kind of a spectrum where at one end you have D3 where it's more low level and on the other end you have charting libraries that kind of do all the work for you. Like uh, I think Recharts is one, React Charts. There's a lot of those. But then on the left side of the spectrum, it's really D3 is the lowest level that you could get where it has a lot of like utility functions that help with transforming data into visual uh, dimensions, like turning, uh, let's say we're visualizing, visualizing temperature. So a lower temperature will be on the left side of our chart and a higher temperature will be on the right side of a chart. So how do we go from temperature to like pixels to the right? And D3 really helps with those like really low level, like I'm going to make the whole chart myself, but mm -hmm. I could use a little bit of help, <laughs> but I'm not going to rely on a charting library to do it all for me. So it's harder to learn, but it's way more powerful once you get the hang of it. Yeah, I would say as somebody who's known about D3, and I think I've used it before, long enough ago, like you said, it's been around forever. I think uh, 2011 in the chat room is what they're saying. So yeah. jQuery era for sure been around so long that I think I've used it and since forgotten even how to use it. But it has this reputation of being hard. Mm -hmm. And I'm just curious why you think that is. Maybe it's just because it is hard to use. Maybe it's because of the low levelness or I don't know, it's powerful. Sometimes power tools are have sharp edges. What, what do you think is hard about it? And was it hard for you to, to pick up on it? Yeah, for sure. So I went through a very typical uh, route for learning D3, where I think most people who use it are primarily developers. And they, at their work, they have to make some kind of dashboard page or they have to make a chart. And then, you know, if you Google like JavaScript chart, you're probably going to come across D3 pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. um, so then, and this might have been, I don't know, seven years ago. And so mm -hmm. seven years ago, when you Google D3 chart or like D3 line graph, you'll come across there's tons of examples of D3 code online that go through start to finish. This is all the code involved in making a line chart. And so I did what pretty much everyone does, which is you copy that code, you put it in your application, and then you change the numbers until things work. <laughs> yes. Because it's not one line of code. It's not a ton of code, but it's not like, you know, this one function that draws a line chart. So over, you know, the next five years, I had to make more and more charts and you slowly get to know the library, but it can be really frustrating if you've copied and pasted the code, you kind of understand most of it, but not all of it. And then your chart looks kind of weird in a certain browser or with certain data. And then you're like, oh, okay, let's change this one thing. And then it gets really hard to maintain and really confusing and no one really understands your chart code. Um, so. Because D3 had such a good ecosystem of people posting their code online, it was kind of a double-edged sword where, I think that saying works, <laughs> where it's both a good thing where people can learn it really easily, but they don't get a proper introduction, and it's almost too easy to get to that code. And there weren't really good comprehensive docs for like understanding what each line does. So... I think that's part of why people have such a hard time learning D3 is 
they jump into the deep end because it's so easy to get there. And then you kind of have to like swim upstream to like kind of figure out what everything does. Um, like it's both hard and easy at the same time. Mm, that's interesting. <laughs> and the other reason I think it's so hard is the whole reason I think data visualization is so hard because it's like the, it's where a bunch of different fields meet. Like you have to learn visual perception. You have to learn like user experience design. Like how are users viewing charts? What could be confusing about a chart? Um, you have to learn like data analysis, statistics. There's just a whole set of things that you have to learn in addition to D3. So I think because a lot of developers are like, I wanna make a chart, I'm gonna use D3. There's just a lot to learn like to do with making a chart in the first place. Mm. I'm curious about the accessibility of D3 because accessibility is really hard for charts. Like I'm pretty sure, if I'm not mistaken, like certain charts you can have read out for, like by a screen reader, things with tangible pieces of data, like bar charts and maybe like pie charts, for example, but things like line charts are like, those can't necessarily be read by a screen reader. And typically I think they, they have to be exported to a CSV file, if I'm not mistaken. How is the accessibility of D3? Totally. That's a great question. The way D3 works is it has a lot, a lot of different modules. And some of those modules, it's kind of like the jQuery parts, like they'll help you draw to the DOM. And those modules, you could either draw with SVG or Canvas. Most people use SVG. If you draw a Canvas chart, you're pretty much out of luck. Like you have, you, you can just put text underneath it. Mm -hmm. But if you draw a chart with SVG, there's actually ways, and it's also really hard to get, like, to find any resources on this. But if we're talking about screen readers, then you can tab through it in the same way that you could tab through, say, a list. So mm -hmm. I've seen examples where you can tab into a chart and it'll say, you know, um, chart with 10 data points. And then you can either skip that if you don't want anything to do with it, or you can tab into it and go through each data point. And there's ways to put, like with SVG, there's a title element and a description element. I think those are the two. And there's actually a few others, but you could like tell the screen reader what to read out for every single data point. So with a line chart, you could mm -hmm. say, if you're tabbed into this data point, say like data point one out of 10, you know, temperature is 70 degrees and the day is June 1st. Um, and then the person could tap through each one of those. Um, but that's something that's very rarely done and it's even more rarely done well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and you also lose a lot. Like the, the whole reason you visualize data is because we want to interact with it in a visual way. And it's hard to translate that to an auditory experience. For sure. So when we talk about D3's low levelness or the maybe the layer of abstraction, what we're talking about is the way you interface with that is at a more granular or lower level than you would at another charting library. So if you've used a high level charting library, you may say library.linechart and you'll pass it like a series of data, right? And you're basically done at that point. Here's my mm -hmm. array of data, or maybe it's more complicated than that, but here's a list of things. Go ahead and chart that. And I can configure you to change your colors and whatnot. Yeah, which is so nice when it works. <laughs> yeah, which is so nice when it works. But at D3, you're you're actually working at a lower layer where maybe that library is actually telling D3 what to do underneath the covers, but you're drawing polygons, you're drawing lines, right? You're actually like programmatically or imperatively telling it what to do 
uh, maybe the drawing layer if you think of it that way. So that's powerful but difficult to pick up. Charting libraries at higher levels are easier to pick up but less powerful. How do you help folks make the decision of like, where do I fit in? Do I go for D3 and just dive in and I can be like a craftsperson and just like, you know, get underneath there? Or am I happy with a higher level thing? Do you have to make those decisions on a regular basis? I mean, you've learned D3 very well, so you grabbed the power tool. But what about somebody new? How can you help them make that decision? Yeah, yeah. And one fun fact is that most, if not all, JavaScript charting libraries are probably using D3 under the hood. <laughs> yeah. That's a hard, like there are no absolutes, but sure. if you don't have a lot of time and you just want to make a chart and you want to move on with your life, then don't reach for D3. It's not worth your time. There's tons of libraries that will do everything for you. So just like look for certain chart libraries and grab one of those, uh, go through their docs, see their examples. There's probably one that fits what you need. But also if you need like a custom chart type, you're not going to find a chart library that lets you do pretty much whatever you want. So in that case, you'll probably want to learn D3. So if you have a lot of time, if you're interested in learning it, if you're working on a dashboard or something where performance is really important and there are going to be a lot of visualization components of it, then I think it's definitely worth learning D3. And also, when I say learn D3, I don't I don't see it as like this huge overwhelming process. It's totally modularized. So there's, I don't know, maybe 40 different modules that go into the D3 library. They're all on uh, the D3 GitHub. So I think if you go to github.com slash D3, you can see all of the different modules. So they're separated into like, there's a color module, there's a hierarchical data module, there's an array module that has methods for manipulating data in arrays. So you can really learn it module by module. I think the harder part to learn is like, what are the steps that go into creating a chart? How do I update that chart? And how do I make a good chart? I think those are probably the harder things to learn. And then you could dive into the D3 library to figure out like what modules you need for each part. Lost my train of thought. I'm curious, when we talk about data visualization, what are the different types? So like, I see, like the overview chart you did for the state of JS service was obviously a really complex line chart, but what other types of data viz are there? And how do you kind of know which one to pick? So chart types? Yeah. So like, what kinds of things can D3 do? So there, like you have the line chart, I assume it can do like bar charts. What other kinds of things can it do? And like, if I have a data set, how do I know I should choose like a line chart over a bar chart, for example? Right, right. That's a good question. So they're talking about the different modules. There are some modules that will just spit out. You have to do a little bit of stuff first, but they'll spit out like a circle packing diagram or a tree map. Tree map is like when I think the old windows used to have this like partition sizes for your different windows partitions or just mm. partitions, like that's kind of what a tree map is. For a few of the more common complicated graphs, they'll have just a method that you say, hey, draw this chart for me, and it'll get you pretty much there. The way I usually use D3 is I will only use the utility functions, like turn these temperature numbers into pixel numbers or turn this set of numbers into colors, and then 
um, because I'm usually working in some kind of JavaScript framework like React, I'll just create those SVG elements using, say, the React render function and use D3 for, like, help me transform this data into physical attributes. So it both will help you draw a ton of different complex charts, in which case there are tons. And there's also D3 hyphen libraries that are just people created them who don't have any affiliation with D3. But there's also like, you can make pretty much any chart type that you want, but you're not gonna get that easy function that's like, draw me a, draw me a tree map. <laughs> draw me mm -hmm. a tree map. <laughs> yeah, so you mentioned like you use D3 with React. Um, does it integrate really nicely with other JavaScript frameworks and libraries? Um, or is it, or is it kind of specific to a few? Yeah, I really, D3 and React is like my favorite workflow for like personal projects. I'll just, like if I wanna visualize some data, I'll just work through it and I'll create like a React component and work through it that way. They work really well together as long as you don't use the D3 functions that will manipulate the DOM. Um, like there's one function, like you can make a tree map, there's one function to create an axis, which is probably the one I miss the most when I'm not using it because it'll make like a little line, it'll draw each tick mark and the value and it'll position it correctly. So I don't use that. I just either make an axis component that creates each of those elements, I guess, by hand, or just do it like in line where you're like in React, you're saying like map over this array of elements or like array of values that I've created and then draw each tick mark by itself. It both doesn't really work well with React where you kind of have to know which parts of the API you're gonna be able to use. There are ways of using those functions within a React component, but it makes me a little bit uncomfortable. Like it gives me the heebie-jeebies to have D3 manipulate the stuff that React is rendering out. Mm. Because it seems a little bit hacky, right? Like React's whole thing is the virtual DOM and it has all these um, like performance benefits when it knows what the elements are. And it kind of creeps me out <laughs> to change that with D3 or anything else um, because React doesn't know about it, but you can. <laughs> I actually played around with Svelte recently and it's really nice. It's actually a really simu similar workflow using Svelte in D3 as using React in D3. But one issue, one big issue with visualizing data with React is animations are not easy with React and especially like enter and exit animations and transitions. So Svelte has some custom, they, ha they have some built in and it just makes that part a lot easier. So that was really, yeah. really nice. I just found out about React Spring. It's kind of my thing I've been working with this year. It's, it's a physics-based animation library and it makes transitioning so much easier. So I'd recommend that if you are having trouble doing those complex animations. Um, I have one more question before we take a, a break here, but what are the alternatives to D3? And like, have you tried them? And why is D3 so powerful? Um, I don't know if there are any alternatives to D3. Um, just because... One, it's been around for so long and it does what it needs to do really well. So um, mm -hmm. I guess no one's struggled enough with a specific problem that they were like, screw it, I'm going to make my own library. So as far as the like low level utility functions go, I think D3 is 
it's like uh it's the main one if not the only one but then there's also like the further along on the spectrum like the charting libraries where you don't really need to learn d3 until you do <laughs> This episode is brought to you by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean provides worry-free database hosting with their managed databases. If you need to get data in and out of Postgres, MySQL, or Redis, call on the world-class support teams at DigitalOcean and stop wasting time on setup, backup, and maintenance. Get simple, predictable pricing. Get detailed documentation. Get up and running in minutes so you can get on with your business. What are you waiting for? Head to do.co slash changelog. Again, that's do.co slash changelog. All right, so we are back. We've learned a lot about the foundations of D3 and now I want to delve a little bit more into some of the cool projects that you built, Amelia, because for those of you listening who haven't checked out her portfolio, um, it is a must-do. I'm going to link a couple things down in the show notes and I want to talk a little bit more about some of these, but you have the coolest article I've ever seen on the CSS Cascade, which is how styles are applied to different HTML elements. So it's kind of about specificity and how styles are applied. How the heck did you build something so complex? Like, how did you even come up with this idea in your mind, like the design for it? And then how did you execute it? And how long did this take? It would have taken me 12 years to build this. (laughs) (laughs) The motivation for that post is largely that this is something that I get confused in my head all the time. So if anyone has, like, felt like they're fighting with CSS, like, oh, I have a class and I want this text to be blue, but... There's apparently some other class somewhere in this like massive application that makes the text red, and then you just put like the element type in front of the class. You do like div.class in the CSS, and then you're like, okay, I win this time, and then you go back, and like 10 weeks later, <laughs> you're fighting with XU or old U. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> Current so, U is always the most important, so you're just being important yourself, <laughs> yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah, and you know you've done something wrong, so you feel bad about it, but you do it anyway. (laughs) But you do it anyway because you're trying to get this thing to stink and work. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so that is me sometimes, and so I was like, I'm going to learn this thing for real. I'm going to figure out, like, why certain um, selectors win over other ones Um, because I think most people who have been doing web development for a while have some idea, but it had never been formalized for me. So... I dug into this spec, which is actually pretty readable for the CSS Cascade, for the most part. (laughs) And then I was trying to figure out, okay, like, how can we visualize this? It's called a Cascade, so let's do a waterfall, (laughs) of course. Um, That'll be easy, won't it? Mm. (laughs) Well, let's just stop and let me describe this page for those who are not, you know, they're driving in their car and they can't look at it. So first of all, view it on desktop. Because on mobile, you'll totally miss it. I was going to ask, like, how did you handle mobile? And I, 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 I moved my screen over. And it's like, well, I punted. That's, fi- that's fair. <laughs> so along the left-hand side of this web page, which is in the show notes, you will see an actual animated waterfall that I assume was drawn and somehow created. And it's the navigation for the web page. So it starts with importance, and then it kind of you know goes over, origins, has video, and works its way down. So Amelia has actually visualized the cascade with an animated waterfall. 
Very cool. So that's what we're talking about. Continue. <laughs> Thank you. I just had to open it up for myself to remind myself. <laughs> if I made this, I would just have it as my like desktop wallpaper. I just stare at it every day. Be like, yeah, I made that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I, the hardest part for this was just going from spec to like figuring out what the different tiers are. What like what way can we visualize this that'll like kind of make it stick with you? So I. I fudged it a little bit. This isn't exactly what the spec says. So the first tier on the, basically the way the cascade works is the higher up something is in the cascade. So you have a certain selector. A selector that's higher up in the cascade will win over a selector that's lower in the cascade. So the way I broke it down, it has four tiers. So the first tier, it's called importance. I don't know. I didn't know what else to call it. And basically the way the stack it, the spec is written is these steps are kind of um, mashed together. So like transition, an active transition will win over anything else. And then below transition is anything you put bang important on. And then there's active animations and then underneath that all normal styles. Um, so the spec's a little bit weird where the next tier that I have is called the origin. So was it a style on your website? Was it a style specified for a that a user has on their own browser, or is it a style specified for the browser itself? So like we all know that, or maybe we don't, buttons look different in Chrome than they do in Firefox, and that's due to the default styles that browsers have. So those button styles will never override the user styles unless they have important, which I don't know if there are any important browser styles that I doubt it, um, but I would love to know if there were, because then it would basically be browsers saying, uh, I want this style and you can't do anything about it, <laughs> which would be interesting. Yeah. We need to do a whole episode on CSS specificity because <laughs> it's so fun. Like people don't understand how there are mathematical equations behind these, not equation. I mean, they're not like calculus, right? It's, it's simple addition, but people don't understand that different selectors, the way that you select these elements from the DOM actually assigns a point value to them. And this can be quite confusing. Yeah. So one thing that Emily did that's really cool here is she how she'll put two rules next to each other and then you have to guess which rule would actually win and then show me the answer. And Emily, you, you may not know this, but Emma just created a JS Jeopardy uh, episode last episode <laughs> in which she had like crazy questions and stuff. I see a mashup coming, like CSS selector Jeopardy, <laughs> oh right? Where you basically give two rules. Can you imagine That'd us all be being like, okay, P color colon, <laughs> Sandy Brown, semicolon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Imagine like everyone listening would tune out. <laughs> no one wants to listen I think to that. Everybody playing would also tune out. But I'm curious, how did you make these? So basically on this article, there are two different code snippets and you select one or the other and that's your choice. And then if you're right or if you're wrong, it reveals the answer with a definition or an explanation. But how did you build this interactive code snippet? Yeah, yeah. So this is all built in React, and I am the worst about linking things, but the code is actually all on GitHub if anyone's curious and wants to check it out. They're basically, each quiz is like a, a custom component. I forget what I called it, maybe quiz. And <laughs> it uses a React hook that takes or that stores like the answer. So if you click the left one or the right one, question A or B, It'll store that in this state. And then once that piece of state has a value, then it'll show the answer um, and tell you if you're right or wrong. And then the like elements on the page are just 
two divs using Flexbox um, with code snippets in, in them and then uh, another div underneath with the answer. That's so cool. This article was great, not just because I love specificity and I think it's great and everyone should fully understand it, um, but because I just think it's like the most beautifully like chaotic website I've ever seen. Like, And I don't mean that in a bad way. Like, There's just so much hidden meaning. Like, I'm going to be honest right now. I saw that it was a waterfall and it didn't fully hit me until we were talking about like the cascading waterfall. But I was like, I get it. I get it. I see what you did there. Well, I was just going to say, I'm always looking for ways to like use the web or like the way we can use browsers to our advantage. I feel like we had newspapers and then we made the web for documents. And then we were like, all right, we're going to put these newspapers on in the website and it's going to be great. And that's it. We're good. This is like peak web. But browsers are like so capable, right? Yeah. The things that they can do these days are amazing. Like there's all these like 3JS, like WebGL examples in the browser that I remember blowing my mind like five, ten years ago. You're right. And so every time I want to explain something on my blog, I like to think through like what are ways that this might more closely match like a user's mental model, a reader's mental model, or ways that it might stick with them better. And like, what new tech is there? What can we use? What can we abuse? Like, I'm sure this site won't age well and will be like a huge pain in the butt to maintain, but it's fun right now. <laughs> Future me will hate it, but like, I don't know. There's, I like using things like scroll events. Like if you're a certain amount down the page, then like do something in like a static uh, side panel like there another one of these posts has a long code example it's actually about doing interactions with d3 um, so it has that one code example on the right and as you scroll it updates the code with the updated code because it can be really hard when you're reading a blog post to have these separated code snippets of like here's your code okay here's another snippet of code where like some things are overlapping um, but you like don't really know where in your previous code example that new code would fit in. So I don't know. I just like trying to take advantage of like the technology that we have and trying to think through like, oh, hey, if we do this, would this make it easier to learn? Yeah, I think that's really great. So you've got a lot of blog articles. But you've also got a really long blog article, also known as a book. <laughs> <laughs> a really long blog. A book-length blog called a book. Yeah. <laughs> so Amelia has published a book called Full Stack D3 and Data Visualization, which is going to be linked in the show notes. And I would love to talk about the fact that you wrote a book because I think that is pretty freaking cool. So can you tell us how this process of writing this book was? Like, did you ever have imposter syndrome writing this? Because writing a book is terrifying. And I can only imagine with the technology as convoluted or, or difficult to learn that this was probably one of the hardest things you've ever done. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, yeah. I mean, I still do have imposter syndrome. We just, you know, try to ignore it um, as much as possible. The, the book was really hard related to what I was saying before, because I'm used to working on the web where you can have links and you say like oh, here's a list and I can refer to things on it and like everything's interconnected. And then like writing the book was like, it needs to have a linear flow. <laughs> and so that was probably the hardest part. And as far as writing a book, 
in general, I could never write like a non-tech book, right? The reason that I could write this book at all was that um, basically the process was I wrote a code snippet or like I outlined the whole book and then for each chapter, the first step was what code should we build that would help teach this um, concept? And then I just like, you know, I'm a developer. I'm very used to this. I wrote the code first and then like kind of took notes on, okay, what did I do first? What did I do second? What are the concepts that we need to learn for this? And then for writing the chapter, it was really just like documenting, like, what did we do? What are resources that can help someone understand these concepts? What are the different concepts? Like without having, like starting by doing the code, I could never have written a book. You um, almost reverse engineered your process by, by looking at your end product. Like yeah. you wrote the code and then you're like, okay, how do I reverse out what I just did in order to write that down? That's yeah, exactly. Cool. Yeah. What does full stack mean with D3? Because to me, full stack means like, you know, front end and back end or <laughs> D3 is, is an animation. It's not animation, but you know what I mean? It's a visualization library. Yeah. So full stack, it's like the, um, the company is called full stack and they okay. have a series of books. Like they have, um, a full stack node is coming out. They have full, full stack React, full stack view, gotcha. and I think so. This wasn't your title. Yeah, so I think it comes from like, for example, the full stack React book. It's like we'll take you through the entire ecosystem. We'll teach you like what testing libraries make sense, um, that kind of thing. They actually mm -hmm. recently rebranded to uh, New Line, so. I don't know what that means for book titles. Rename your book? <laughs> I don't think so, but that's a good question, and it's just part of a, a series, I guess. Gotcha. That's awesome. So I'm just curious, like, how long did it take you to write this book? Yeah, so I started last December, not like December 2019, but December 2018. So over the New Year's, I started, and then we finished, I think, April. So it was pretty fast, but it was also pretty intense. Like, I was writing, I don't know, 10 hours a week or something like that. Um, because I still have my full-time job. So it was, you know, in the evening I'd write a little bit. Uh, I'd have Saturday, I'd go to a coffee shop and write a little bit. So it, I guess it seemed short, but it also felt long. <laughs> yeah. Well, the million-dollar question is, was it worth it? And now you're, now you're looking back at it. Did you, would you do it again? Or were you like, yeah, I'm never doing that again. Oh, totally. I would never write that book again. <laughs> <laughs> Does that have to be a sequel? <laughs> oh God. No, I don't, I don't know if I could do that. I would definitely write a tech book again. It was definitely worth it. If only for the reason that like over my career as working as a developer on dashboards, this really gave me a chance to like take a step back and think through like, what have I learned? What are these different concepts? And like kind of form formalize them, make sure what I have in my head matches what the actual code is. I learned a lot writing the book, which is really valuable to me because I'm sure there were tons of things that I never would have like done a proper deep dive on if not for this needs to be right because I'm telling it to other people. <laughs> Oh, 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 
this episode is brought to you by Algolia, search technology to power your business. Trusted by Twitch, Stripe, Adobe, and many more. Even us, yes, we use them to power our search and we love the way they obsess over that developer experience. They let us fine tune the index for the best results and report back what people are searching for, even servicing search terms that get zero results, which we love. Check the show notes for a link to get started for free or head to algolia.com to learn more. All right, so we've heard a little bit more about your awesome book and some of your really cool blog posts, but I am really curious to know quite a bit more about your process for how you designed, built, all of that. I want to know all the details about this overview chart on the State of JS survey. So could you kind of walk me through your process of how you built this? Yeah, totally. So from the start, the survey, the main person who works on the survey, his name is Sasha Grief. He's an awesome designer. And he always works with uh, someone named Raphael, totally blanking on his last name, but he has this chart library called, it has a name, Um, but he works on this chart library and I think it's a React chart library Um, and we can, I can throw a link in later and that's what powers all of the other charts on the site. Um, So Sasha asked me on Twitter if kind of like, I would help do some more complicated charts um, just as like a guest visualizer, kind of like you have like cameos on like blog posts and stuff like Mm -hmm. that. Um, So I was like, yeah, totally. It's a really awesome data set and I love their design in the first place. So it was also really fun to work with them. Um, So while they were collecting the survey data, um, I kind of had a demo data set to work with, with maybe a third of you know, the final responses, um, just so we could work on it at the same time that the survey was running. And I went through a lot of different iterations of like, here's the data, what can we do that would be cool, interesting, and informative to people who read the survey. So I actually came, we came up with a lot of different options, some of which I'm kind of bummed that never made the, the final cut just because they work so fast like I think the survey was closed and then I don't know four days later they published the site live like it was really impressive Mm -hmm. so we decided to go with one and we wanted to focus on like what's an easy way to get an overview of the JavaScript ecosystem as a JavaScript developer like it'd be really nice to have like kind of a bird's eye view of like how things are going Um, Like, what are the different tools and who uses them? So this project started with that goal and, um, like, what the data were. Like, so for this survey data, for every tool, and by tool I mean JavaScript library, like React or Redux or Angular or, um, like, testing libraries like Enzyme or Jasmine or, like, React Native. So everything that people use that is a JavaScript library Um, I guess, I guess we're calling a tool and we, this is their fourth or fifth year running this survey, which is really impressive. So they were just coming into territory of, we can do some kind of historical analysis of like 
how opinion of different tools has changed over time. So we knew we also wanted to take advantage of that. So the answers for each tool. So a person's going through the survey and the question, I don't know the exact wording, but the question is something like, like what is ex your experience with say Angular? And they have five responses. Uh, let me find the exact wording. I don't know the exact wording, but basically the responses were, I haven't used it. I'm not interested in using it. I haven't used it. I am interested in learning it. I have used it and I don't like it or I don't want to use it again. And I have used it and I do want to use it again. That kind of data, we could do like a basic bar chart of each of these tools for like what percent of people said each of these different answers, but it's kind of hard to extrapolate across different charts where there's like four different bars and you're like, okay, this first one's short over here and this other one's short, but not as short. So I thought, how can we reduce this into two dimensions? And so I turned those questions into one dimension that is what percent of people have used it and what percent of people haven't used it. And the other dimension is people like it or they don't like it. So I collapsed across people who had and hadn't used it, which you can argue that those are different, but like I haven't used it and I don't want to use it and I have used it and I don't like it. Those are different things, but for the sake of, you know, this is the data we have. Those are the two dimensions. So you can plot each tool on a chart where the vertical axis is further up tools have been used more and the horizontal axis is further to the right tools people like more. And so like you can have kind of a scatter plot of like each tool on that chart. And then the thought was, how do we add a historical component to this? And then I started with just like an arrow that went through the different value, the different positions for each tool for the past four years, even though something like um, I think Svelte is new, so it only has one dot. Some mm -hmm. of them have four dots. And I had to iterate on that just so like the lines weren't all over each other. <laughs> and I had to do some custom stuff for a label placement because if you look at the chart, like the bottom middle, so yeah, there's a lot of tools used. have not been used and like people don't have strong opinions about them, which kind of makes sense. Like it makes sense that a new tool would start in the bottom middle where like people aren't very opinionated and not a lot of people have used them. Mm. And it's kind of cool because you see this like, group movement of tools coming like through the lower right quadrant up into the top right yeah. qu quadrant where like more and people it seems like people like a tool first and then everyone starts to use it um which is kind mm. of interesting well it, i find it super interesting that most of them yes follow this trend and then poor angular it's like <laughs> negative opinions like a decent amount of people have used it and now it's like yeah, some positive opinions, but no one's using it anymore. <laughs> yeah. You always get those outliers. <laughs> it's almost not fair because I think they'll tend to drop tools once, like, their popularity is fading. Like, the JavaScript mm -hmm. ecosystem is, it has a very strong cycle of life <laughs> where tools rise and then they fall and they were great. Um, but you know, we're always moving forward. So I think there are a lot of tools that would be going that direction, but they're just not in the survey. <laughs> so Angular was so great that now we get to see it go yeah, leftward. I think I could be wrong, but I think there was some confusion around Angular and AngularJS being convoluted for some reason. So it's definitely that one, be. 
Yeah, I'm not sure the details on that. Maybe Sasha can help us sort those out, but I think there might have been uh, potentially reasons why that's the case that may not represent yeah. public opinion. That being said, it's worth noting that, uh, first of all, we will embed this actually in the show notes so you can just go look at it and know what we're talking about. What's cool is there you have the different categories along the bottom, JavaScript flavors, front-end, back-end, testing, et cetera. And as you hover your mouse over them, it focuses on that type of tool or that you know subsection and they draw they animate it and draw in the arrows as, as they draw across and one thing that you notice about the front end frameworks in general except for spelt that just has a singular point is like they're all generally like getting more popular but then moving a little bit to the left right mm-hmm. or maybe a lot to the left in certain cases they all do so like the year. more popular they get the more negative the opinions get about them and i think that's just the way that, you know it's like the old Batman was not Batman Returns, but either die a hero or live long enough to become a villain. You know, like that's just what's happening. Like the more popular you get, the more people are like, yeah, I'm over you. Yeah. yeah. People, I think maybe JavaScript developers are uh, strong on using and abusing their tools. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well said. <laughs> so once you had the idea and you, you, there's a lot of iteration, how did you put this into practice? So I'm curious, like, did you, like, were you working in D3 this entire time once you said, okay, it's a quadrant chart and we're going to have like the whole left, right, top, down thing, and then we're going to, you know, move them over time. Once you had the idea, were you drawing hand sketches? Were you in D3? Did you use like a Figma or like any sort of, you know, maybe what's the tool on iPad where you just kind of draw by hand? What's your process to get here? Yeah, so usually my first step is to grab the data set, and I'll have like a either typing or writing on a sketch pad. I'll put the main goal, like what do we want to accomplish for this chart? And then I'll detail every single piece of data that we have within the data set. So for this one, it was each item in the array is a user or one respondent. And then you have for each tool, we had like a string of the different responses. What are the different responses that are possible? Um, So I'll usually start there just to get some kind of clarity. And then I will sketch Uh, What are different ways that we can visualize this data? Like, should should this dimension be mapped to color or to horizontal position or to, like, if we're doing a Scottish plot, like the size of the bubble? Um, And then I'll go through through a few iterations that way. And really, I should... I should sketch more often, and it's a goal of mine to do that more often because I usually jump to the code. And... With the code, what I really like to do, and one of the great things about this data set was that I had the data when I was iterating on designs, because you never really know what'll work. Sometimes like you do a scatter plot and it's too busy and you have to work with something else, or it doesn't highlight like one interesting part of the data set. So I'll usually go straight to the code and something that was nice was that this uh, state of JS website is built with Gatsby, I'm pretty sure. It's at least with React. And so I could I created my own React environment to work through with the dummy data set or the uh, a third size data set. So I iterated a few times um, that way and uh, went back and forth with Sasha and he came up with some really good points. Like, like he, it was his idea to do how the tools have changed over time. And then at some point we had to switch to a dark chart, <laughs> moving it over to the um, the actual site. And yeah, so it, it starts with like, what is the goal and what data do we have? The middle part is like hand sketching. 
And then the last part, which usually takes the most time, is iterating on different ways that we can visualize it within the browser with the real data set. That's really cool. If you guys haven't checked out the chart on the overview, the overview chart in the state of JS survey, highly recommend it. Like Jared said, we will embed this in the UI. What kind of plans do you have for the future? Like, do you have any fun projects that you're working on with D3 or are you just, you're kind of taking it easy at the beginning of this year? Yeah, so things are really hectic right now, actually, because I'm moving in a few weeks and I'm, I haven't announced it officially, but I'm actually moving to more of a data journalism position at a company called The Pudding. So, mm-hmm. congrats. Thanks. I'm really excited. Yeah. The pudding, like, uh, have your pudding, like, eat pudding, or what's it called? Like, the proof is in the pudding. Gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> Which I'm really excited about because they do, like, really fun, interactive data is driven essays on the web. So, you might have seen they did one with, like, um, the diversity of vocabulary for different rappers. I don't know. If you haven't checked it out, go to pudding.cool. They have a lot of fun, like, database essays. And I'm really excited about this because it's like both very different and not very different from my current job as a developer and designer for dashboards, where like it's a lot of the same skill set, but also different skill sets of like storytelling and like, uh, you used to be more creative and wait, this is really cool. I just went to their website and they have an article called population mountains, how to perceive the populations of cities. And like, the parallax on this site, I'm going to post this in our chat as well, and as well as in the show notes. This is the coolest thing. So I think you're going to be well-respected here and you're going right to be surrounded in. by like-minded people. This is so cool. Yeah, yeah. My they're goodness. a really awesome company. Yeah, well, congrats on that new role. That sounds like it's going to be really exciting for you. Yeah, I'm super excited. Awesome. So we had, I had, I personally had so much fun learning about D3 and learning about your projects. Um, where can people find you on the internet? Um, so my last name is Wattenberger and it's never used. (laughs) So uh, my email is wattenberger at gmail.com, which I stole from my family. (laughs) My Twitter is slash wattenberger. Uh, my website is wattenberger.com. Um, yeah, those are all great. Uh, avenues to like if you want to see any any of the projects I've worked on or if you want to ask me anything Twitter is a great place at Wattenberger yeah and we will link all of these down in the show notes well thank you again Amelia it was such a pleasure chatting with you I'm really looking forward to seeing you know what you put out in the future and I wish you also we wish you the best of luck at your new role thanks so much yeah this was great Hey, is there a developer in your life who would benefit from listening to JS Party? We would truly appreciate a recommendation. Shoot them a quick email or a Slack message, put out a tweet, whatever, or get crazy. Get up from your desk, walk across the room, and tell them IRL. Who knows? It might be a good conversation starter. This episode was hosted by Emma Boschin and Jared Santo. That's me. Big thanks to our guest, Amelia Wattenberger, and Breakmaster Cylinder for producing our beats. We're brought to you by awesome sponsors. Support them. They support the show. You know Fastly, Linode, and Rollbar have our back. If you haven't yet, hit up our master feed because, hey, monoliths are back in style. It's all Changelog podcasts in one easy subscription. Get it for the price of a free bagel. Thanks again for listening. We'll talk to you next week.